Good evening. <laughs> Off to a flying start. So this evening I want to continue a little the conversation about the Four Noble Truths. Um, not explicitly talking about one truth, although the subject matter will be somewhere around the Second Noble Truth. Um, but I also want to talk about um, some of the mental processes that come out of uh, the force of grasping and aversion and uh, how the, the, the selfing process, the sense of self, uh, is conditioned by um, the force of desire and aversion and other things. So just so that I want to touch on several different areas that I think are pertinent to where you are and our practice and also to the uh, to our role as teachers and helping uh, discern that in our students. I'll just stay quiet. (laughs) Sometimes the best Dharma talks are the quiet ones. There's a great story of when the Buddha was in front of a large assembly of monks and he remained silent for the whole teaching. And at the end of the teaching, or at some point during the teaching, all he did was hold up a flower uh, the, you know, the Buddha was said to be able to know the, the aptitude and the ripeness of his students and to give just the appropriate teaching in the moment, which, was why, which is why so many of his students uh, woke up listening to his discourses. So sitting at the back was uh, the monk Mahakashapa, who understood the meaning of that transmission of the simplicity of the suchness of a teaching of just that, and that thus was, so the tradition goes, was the, the origin of the mind-to-mind transition, transmission, which, which uh, continued all the way through to uh, China and Japan. Anyhow, it's not what I was going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> So on the last retreat that I sat uh, with Ajahn Sumedho, um, we would chant these lovely um, homages and invocations and praises to the Three Jewels. And I'd been chanting those for about 25 years now. I did that chanting a lot when I first started practice. And he often commented, and, and I often reflected on a couple of lines that um, are very pertinent, that talking about the teachings Ehipasiko and Opanayiko. The teachings are timeless. The teachings are imminent. The teachings are available here and now to be understood here and now. So even though these teachings can often seem quite heady and quite complex and sometimes intellectual, the point is to really understand them in the imminence, in the in the in the aliveness of the moment. And ehipasiko literally means it's a a come and see thing. It's an invitation for you to check these things out, like I think Frank was saying yesterday. So I offer this teaching as a way for you to uh, just, it's another angle. Each of these teachings is just another way to look at your experience, uh, to inquire is to investigate, to see what's true. And as you're sitting here listening, to, to, to keep that, that, that inquiry alive. So there's an active listening and also an embodied listening. 
and also the the teachings are to be uh, the, the, this imminence, the timeless quality that's available here and now. But there's also a place for reflection. You know, sometimes we'll hear a teaching, and either we won't get it, we won't understand it, or it's just something that we mull over for years and years and years. And then sometime, at some point, it just the seed has been planted, and at some point it just bubbles up, and we go, ah. That's what that means. I remember this happened for me on a retreat at Guy House, actually. It's the same retreat I talked about uh, earlier that was a difficult retreat, at least the beginning part of the retreat. And I was just walking quietly at night, which I like, love to do on a retreat. And, um, and the words came to me, uh, those who see me see the Dharma. Those who see the Dharma see me. It was, it was instruction the Buddha gave he scolded uh, one of his monks who used to sit at the foot of his, at, at his feet, sort of looking up all starry-eyed and you're the guru and aren't you amazing and you know, complete you know, teacher transference adoration. And the Buddha wasn't having any of that. He's like, this is just a rotten bag of you know, flesh and bones and this has got nothing to do with the Dhamma. But if you see the Dhamma, you see the truth, then you really see who I am. If you really see who, who I am, you see the Dhamma. And so, in just you know, so different times, you may notice uh, these wisdom teachings percolating, and suddenly, oh, and it just drops in. So, uh, don't worry if a lot of these things that we offer here don't go in. And, I, and I've been talking to people today about different things that are perplexing the mind, and that's often quite a good thing. Just don't try to bash your head against the wall figuring it out by the end of the week. So in uh, one of the teachings of the Buddha, he talked about uh, the 12 links of dependent origination, which I'm not really going to go into except a couple of key points. It's a, it's a teaching he gave to understand um, how things condition each other, how things arise due to innumerable conditions. And uh, it's often depicted, I was actually hoping to bring one in here, but I couldn't find one, uh, is uh, in Tibetan iconography is the wheel of life. Some of you may have seen it. It's a very complex wheel with 12 links of dependent origination and the six realms of existence, human, God, animal, hell, etc. And at the core of the wheel is greed, hatred, and delusion that drives the wheel of samsara. And it's all held in the jaws of uh, Yama, uh, the Lord of Death, which is really is the Lord of the conditioned realm, and the point of the of the, the wheel of life is to de- is both to depict this realm that we live in, but also the way out. These teachings are a way out of the conditioned realm, as in a way out of being caught and uh, uh, um, caught in suffering by the conditions that we experience in our lives. That's the point of this, is to understand the conditions so we're no longer uh, uh, in pain or in suffering or in conflict with with, with what is. So on that wheel, in the the 12 links, uh, the most important links uh, that we need to pay attention to um, in terms of our practice, we have the body, the six senses, through the senses come contact, with contact, there is a feeling tone, which we've been talking about, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And there's a, in this uh, the picture, depiction of the wheel of life, the, the, there's a Buddha in the top corner of the, of the wheel, standing outside the wheel, pointing down at a place on the wheel between uh, feeling tone, Vedana, and craving. And he's pointing to this is the way out of the wheel of suffering. Because the wheel goes on to craving, becoming, uh, rebirth, death, suffering, and then it starts again, ignorance, and you start this endless round. And maybe you experience that your days here is an endless round. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to speak a little to this point that's been pointed to. When in England we would joke, uh, if you take the London Underground, and often there's a big gap between the the, the train and the platform, and often the announcement goes, mind the gap. 
mind the gap. This was a Buddhist London in-joke. Mind the gap. So just to recap um, about the, what we've been saying about this, this, uh, this uh, chain of causality. I, I don't like that language because it sounds very abstract, but just the way our uh, uh, experience conditions more experience. So we have contact, we have something pleasant. If it's unnoticed in mindfulness, usually the, the pleasantness leads to some kind of wanting, some kind of grasping. That when I was in teaching in a, a retreat in, in India, in Bodhgaya, there was a, a, a yogi who came to see me and uh, he was talking about his, rich, his experience the day before. And he said he'd had a, such an amazing morning of practice and, and, and leading up to that morning, uh, he, was, he got so inspired by the teachings and was really, his meditation was really concentrated and was you know, tasting those beautiful moments of peace and tranquility and clarity. And he got so excited about that, you know, and he'd spent, he'd, he'd sort of gone to India and was taking a long time to just travel and study and practice. He began to have all these thoughts, oh, this is so wonderful. Maybe I could hop over to Burma. You know, I hear, I hear it's really easy to ordain now. I could become a monk and then really, you know, relish in these deep, peaceful states of nirvana and maybe find a cave and, you know... On and on and on, and of course, all that excitement about becoming a monk and living in a cave and getting enlightened, and he got really agitated and restless. And so the rest of his day was like really, you know, difficult, especially coming from the peace and the tranquility. Um, and uh, so the rest, of, so the, by the end of the day, he was so frustrated by his inability to concentrate, he wanted to leave the retreat. <laughs> and I'm sure many of you have been there, right? So we go from these, these uh, places of pleasantness and we create a whole scenario, like building a yoga studio in our house. <laughs> <laughs> and then when it's unpleasant, we want to flee. We want to get the hell out. I was on a retreat I'm not sure if I've told you this story, I hope I haven't, but I was on a retreat in Wales um, uh, in the beginning of my practice in England and in, in Wales, in Britain. Uh, Wales is next to England, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I always get told off for saying that. Anyhow, so I was on this retreat in the middle of nowhere in Wales, and um, I was uh, having a really hard time. It was miserable, cold, and rainy, and uh, I was craving chocolate. Uh, seemed like I'm not the only one who likes chocolate. <laughs> and uh, there was the nearest village was about three miles away down, long, windy roads, and it was howling winter rain and all that. But I thought, well, what the hell? Nothing to lose, <laughs> something to do. I, but I, what happened was my, my roommate was sick. And I thought, okay, I'll be a great bodhisattva and uh, go get some cold medicine and then I can get a little stash of chocolate. And then it's a win-win. So off I trundled in my rain gear and got to the store just before it closed and there's loads of candy, so I loaded up. And I got so carried away in, in, the, in buying all the goodies that I forgot about the cold medicine. So I trundled back home, howling rain, walk into the door, my roommate's all huddled up, looking really sick and <laughs> eager for the lemsip, the medicine. And I go, oh. <laughs> it's one of those horrible moments you never wish to experience again. Anyhow, he took it in good humor. He drew me this very cute uh, picture of me at the store, just bags and bags of chocolate. And, and behind the, the person, the counter is like, hordes of cold medicine, <laughs> and I'm going, oh, and another one of those chocolates? <laughs> so if you've had that craving or you've acted it out in some way, you know you're in good company. But that's the power of, you know, just an idle thought, oh, this retreat's hard, oh, 
Yeah, <laughs> something pleasant. You know, and it could have been anything, right? It happened to be chocolate in my case, but. So uh, there's, a, there's a particular piece I want to talk about tonight um, that uh, in Buddhist parlance is called papancha, which is a particular way that we mentally proliferate uh, based on um, grasping, aversion, views, and the sense of self. So uh, it's a way that we, um, the mind runs with, and not just, and we don't just feel the force of grasping and aversion, but we also mentally concoct and proliferate whole stories and scenarios um, about the world and ourselves. And they're very powerful, as, as, as I know you've, you've been talking about, the, the way that the mind, you get lost and gripped by the mind, by the, by the way you get carried away in building these yoga studios and you know, starting foundations or whatever it is that's coming up in the mind. And you know, as we know, the mind is a powerful thing. And we are conditioned to, to follow most thoughts and to believe every thought that comes into the mind. And some of these thoughts have a, have a lifetime of conditioning. The thoughts that we might have about not being good enough, not being enough, very deep conditioning. And they, they arise and, and they take over the mind. This is from Byron Katie. She says, mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning, and yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Mm-hmm. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. Until there's peace within you, there is no peace in the world, because you are the world. So I'll just say, I'll just give a few of my little um, uh, understanding on these, these, these different types of papancha, uh, which we get so lost in. You know, when we talk about being lost in thought, it's often what we're lost in is papancha. You know, we can walk into the room and somebody in front of us has a really nice yoga bolster. And instead of just noticing, oh, bolster, you know, we go, ah, oh, huh, it's from Yoga Wise. That's uh, cool. I'll check that out when I go home. And suddenly we're buying all these new yoga props and mats and matching clothing that goes with the mat. And or we're sitting and um, you know, it's late morning and we're, our st- stomach starts to rumble. And we're a little bored in the meditation. And the mind, the mind, the thought arises, oh, I'm hungry. Desire. The desire goes unnoticed. I wonder what's for lunch. I hope it's not tofu. <laughs> Maybe it's pizza. <laughs> Good New York pizza. You know, the best New York pizza I had that time was down on 9th Street. You know, that little bakery on the corner? And they served the great, this great cappuccino, too. It's about time I took a vacation, you know? It's been a while since I took time off. But my best pizza actually was in Rome. I'm actually going to Rome in a, in a couple of months, so I have been having some... <laughs> proliferations about pizza. <laughs> and then suddenly, we, you know, we're sipping Chianti on, you know, an evening on the, on the, on the, on the Spanish steps and with a slice of pizza and, and then the lunch bell goes, oh, right, Spirit Rock. <laughs> breathing in, breathing out, thinking, thinking, as we run down the hill, trying to look mindful. <laughs> fast, slow. <laughs> oh, the other way this happens a lot on retreat is, um, as you've probably heard, the Vipassana romance. 
<laughs> I'll say no more. <laughs> you know, we're sitting here for 10 days, we're practicing celibacy. So what happens? All these beautiful people around wearing these wonderful yoga clothes. <laughs> so the mind catches a you know, particular person, a particular form, and oh, nice, lovely. And then we happen to sort of find ourselves hanging, doing walking practice next to them a little more than usual. And, <laughs> and then they, we see them behind us in the lunch line and we get really excited. Oh. <laughs> And then we, this whole story goes, have you been there? Have you noticed this? You know, these this, this whole proliferations of, I wonder what it'd be like. Oh yeah, I could see that working out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we could move to the country and, you know, a couple of dogs and kids and... But then it might not work out, you know? I could, I could see it really turning nasty too, lawsuits and... You know, we, we find out the person after the retreat is, you know, married with 15 children from Russia, you know. <clears throat> I was, I'm reading this wonderful book called Stumbling on Happiness. It's a, a Harvard psychologist's research on uh, thinking and our, and, our, and our fascination with thinking, uh, particularly um, the trap of future thinking, how we, and this, this is really another form of pancha, how the, the human mind is oriented towards the future and planning and anticipating. But, and then we, we build these great plans for the future, not realizing that when the future arrives and when that experience happens, we're a completely different person. So it's often the disillusion that happens when people retire. They built this whole life, this whole, this whole vision, and yet when they get there, they're actually a different person. And he was talking about how people with the strongest crushes like he did this research in, 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 a, in a company, the people with the strongest attractions uh, took the longest, so, so that he, he, he analyzed a bunch of people who had attractions to other people. And the people who had the strongest attraction uh, waited the longest to do anything about it because they're enjoying just the mental fantasy of it. So here's a really good example of... Um, uh, tanha papancha, the, 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 the papancha, the proliferation that arises from, from grasping. It's called unwise purchases. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything. The box set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened, the complete Proust and read, the French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet, and made me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only use once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose test I never opened, text who I never opened, whose dozen cassettes tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never, lear where I never learned whether the, the, the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room, actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they were happily married, raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terrahorte. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads <laughs> Prowse while, reading, while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner, near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes, on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case, next to the abandoned chess set, a woman who always dreams of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming, has always <laughs> dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and while the two of them discuss dark clusters in Cezanne, while they fence delicately to the, in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. 
That's what we do with our proliferating mind. So no matter how strong the wanting, and no matter how pleasant the object, it's really important to pay attention to the suffering nature of wanting, the suffering nature of longing. So no matter how beautiful and delicious the object of our desire, the the actual tangible quality of longing, which also has a concurrent feeling of deficiency or lack, separation, really important to notice that. So, and we're not, we're not getting rid of, we don't have to get rid of anything. We, we, just as we talked about in the first noble truth, we get close to it, we understand it, we feel it, we sense it, we feel the burning of it. That allows a natural disenchantment. We feel the suffering, we don't have to get rid of it like it's bad. No, oh, we feel it, oh, this is dukkha. Why would I want to keep doing this? So the second kind of papancha is the papancha moha papancha. Papancha based on aversion or on hatred. Not liking or not wanting what's happening. So we can see this on retreat too. Maybe there's something you don't like about the retreat. Or you don't like about the way it's being taught. Or the teachers or the teachings. Well, if I was teaching this retreat, if I was running this retreat, there'd be way more yoga that the only sattvic food, I'd be teaching very different style, you know, and on and on and on, right? Based on not liking, not wanting what's happening. Or we notice the way that we have these endless arguments in our heads, these rows with our partners and our family and our bosses and our... And we're always right. And we're always proving that we're right. It's a bit of an unfair argument since the other person can't really <laughs> speak up. But again, noticing the fuel, the fire of that, it burns a little, that righteous anger. Which it doesn't really go anywhere because it's really just a, you know, a castle in the sky. We rarely actually have those conversations. If we do, there's a real-life person who says something quite different than what we were planning. <laughs> so, and noticing the positioning, noticing how the, the, that, that, that grasping the anger, the righteousness, leads to a, a, a solidification of the self. And any solidification of the self is suffering. It's separating. There's a wonderful line from Korean master Bankai in, in this, a uh, beautiful book called Tracing Back the Radiance, which is an exquisite title for a book. Tracing Back the Radiance of the Mind of Awareness. He says, don't side with yourself. Don't side with yourself. You notice that in all these arguments, all these internal dialogues, we're always siding with ourselves. So there's a certain amusing quality to the proliferation in the mind, but it's also very painful because it's, it's endless. We we want nothing more to sit in peace and quiet, and the mind just keeps chattering. 65,000 times a day, so some studies suggest how many thoughts we think. And there are many other ways that we proliferate based on not wanting, not liking. All because of the fact that we, we, an unpleasant experience, a sound, a sensation, a uh, an emotion, we didn't notice the unpleasantness, and now the unpleasantness arose, the aversion and the proliferation. I was living in this house in San Anselmo, just down the road, and um, for about a year and a half, my neighbors uh, turned their land into a construction project and removed about 100,000 tons of earth because they decided they wanted the, the house sort of where the hill was. So, and they wanted to build a house over the creek, over a metal bridge, and it was kind of noisy. As you can imagine, 100,000 tons of earth. Um, so there's a lot of noise and a lot of unpleasant stimuli 
for me at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, particularly the, the the backhoes were were bad, but the beep 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 <laughs> was that was what really got to me. The the grinding I could tolerate just, but the beeping at seven in the morning was like. Oh. And I'd notice my mind. You know, there would be some days I would just be noticing a sound, sound, or pleasant, pleasant, noticing reactivity. But other times I would be tired or grumpy or just not as mindful, and it'd be like, "Ah, oh, well, you just, you know." And I'd be writing managers to the county and to the supervisor, and you know, going down there and what I'd say to them, and putting super glue in the lock so they couldn't get to the site, and you know, story, 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 which of course never went anywhere. And I did go down. I did. I did make vocal my 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 protest. You know, it's not like it's not that we don't do anything. It's not that we become doormats. We just become these awareness sponges. Uh, there's there's a place, you know, out of wise mindfulness comes wise action. So um, it's important to remember that. So another place that we proliferate a lot is around our views, our views and opinions. Ditti papancha, it's called. So again, you may notice a lot of views and opinions arising on this retreat. You know, we're bringing together these vast, two vast schools, traditions. You know, we have a lot of views and opinions about each one and about many of the schools within each one. And so um, it would be natural that some of these views and opinions and preferences might be getting triggered. So it's, what's important is just to notice when the views are running, noticing the identification, the attachment to them, noticing the, um, the uh, positioning and the uh, jostling and comparing. You know, and, and there's, there's as many, there's as many uh, attachment to views in, in the Dharma world, in the spiritual world, as there is anywhere else. You know, the political world's full of ditti papancha. You know, all, these, all these political discussions we have, it's a lot of papancha mostly. The same with our spiritual views. I remember being um, not allowed into a, into a Buddhist center's uh, meditation hall because I wasn't from that tradition and it wasn't okay for somebody else to come in to practice that. That was what I call a certain view, attachment to view. And then we have views about our practice, a lot of views about our practice. I should be further on than where I am right now. I should be deeper than I am. I should be more enlightened than I am. Isn't that a wild concept? I should be somewhere other than where I am. I should be further on than where I am. I mean, that is impossible. <laughs> Otherwise, you would be. <laughs> and it's a tremendous source of suffering. I might, you know, I've done 10 retreats and my practice really should be more together by now. <laughs> Reality is the highest order. Our practice is like this. Our understanding is like this. I shouldn't have to feel this emotion. I should be done with it. I should be over this grief by now. It's been at least three months since that great loss. It's a view. And notice the suffering that comes from when we identify with that view. How we close down, shut down, deny, repress, reject our experience, the truth of our experience. So think about the particular views you have about your practice and to really take a look at them to see whether they're really true and whether they're serving you. This is from, again, from Byron Katie, who has a lot to say about views, and she's a very delightful teacher around, around the power of thought. She's saying, she's at home. Just when I think that life is so good that it can't get any better, the phone rings and life gets better. I love that music. How often do we think that when we hear the phone? As I walk towards the phone, there's a knock at the door. Who could it be? I walk towards the door, filled with the given, the fragrance of the vegetables I've been preparing, the sound of the phone, and I've done nothing for it. And then I trip and fall. The floor is so unfailingly there. 
I experience its texture, its security, its lack of complaint. In fact, the opposite. It gives its entire self to me. <laughs> I feel its coolness as I lie on it. Obviously, it was time for a little rest. <laughs> the floor accepts me unconditionally and holds me without impatience. As I get up, it doesn't say, come back, come back, you're deserting me, you owe me, you didn't thank me, you're ungrateful. <laughs> no, it's just like me. It does its job. It is what it is. The fist knocks, the phone rings, the salad waits, the floor lets go of me, life is good. So how would that be to meet our experience like that? that whatever happened, we're walking down the dining room and we trip over you know, in front of 50 yogis behind us. You know, you know, what, would it, what would happen to us in that situation? The mind would have a field day, wouldn't it? Oh, you're so unmindful, I can't believe it. Oh, it's time, for, it's time for me to get intimate with the tarmac. Oh. <laughs> time for a rest. So think about that as you, no, think about it, but just. (laughs) (laughs) Then think about all the times you didn't do that well. So our practice is always very simple. It's to be the knowing, to be the awareness, to be that which is knowing all of these things that are coming and going to know the conditions, to be this spacious sky-like mind that we all have within our nature to have access to. So we notice the thought trains. We notice the thought trains coming and going, and we don't take them out of the station. The thought train of, oh, my practice isn't good enough, we see that and we don't need to get on that train. Or we see the pizza train, or the, the romance train, or the my bank balance is too low train. Oh, I know if I pick that up, I'm going to run for 10 minutes. Oh, we see it. We let it go. So we're not getting rid of anything. <clears throat> Sometimes letting go and release and abandoning happens, but not through rejection, not through pushing away, not through force. One of my teachers, Punjaji, in India used to say, don't let a single thought land anywhere. Don't let a single thought land anywhere. Mostly, you know, thought comes like, oh, come for dinner. Let's have a conversation. Yep, that's me. Yep, I'm a loser. Mm -hmm. Lands, we identify, we've taken birth as whatever whatever that thought is, as a loser, as a good person, as a bad person, as a good yogi, as a bad yogi. So all this, another way, you know, the the, the Dharma teachings are really... um, you know, just many aspects of a prism or, or, or a multifaceted crystal. And so there, there are different ways, different doorways, different gates to understand essential truths. So another way of understanding this is um, the Buddha talked about, uh, he gave a teaching on the fetters, the ten fetters, he called them, that um, bind us to to this conditioned world, to suffering. And one of the, and the first three fetters, um, really the primary fetter of the, the first three fetters are what, um, uh, are the obstacles to the first stage of awakening in, in uh, Buddhist understanding, to understanding uh, true nature. And the primary, I, for myself, I think the primary uh, Better of the, those three is what he called Sakya Ditti, self view or personality view. The clinging to uh, the self. And so um, pa- the, this papancha, this proliferation, 
that arises out of views or grasping or aversion. It's really all a form of Sakyaditi, self-view. Because why? Because take a look at your proliferation of your thoughts. What are they about? (laughs) Me. I. I and my. Eyeing and myeing. Ahamkara and mamamkara. I think it is in Pali. My life, my views, my needs, my wants, my desires, my likes, my preferences. My way, my view. I'm right, you're wrong. The Sakyadidi, this, this proliferation, is a way that the, the self, the egoic mind, sustains itself. Sustains this apparent continuity of me. And how does it sustain it? By constantly thinking about it all the time. You know, how, long, how, how long is the gap between uh, not thinking about myself? You know, two seconds, five seconds, ten seconds? You know, now I am again. Oh, yes. <laughs> My knee pain. Oh, now I'm bored. Oh, I'm tired. I'm itchy. I'm self-conscious. And on it goes. My project, my life, my teaching, my plans. And so it creates this vast web of history and personality and stories and it's like this amazing, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the magician's trick. You know, this, this idea of you know, the world is illusion. It's not illusion. It's like, a, it's like an illusion. It's like a magic trip because of the incredible subtlety and sophistication of the mind to build this incredible elaborate castle in the sky of me. And of course, we're all endlessly fascinated by it because it's about me. So what happens is everything becomes self-referencing. Everything becomes about us. So we walk through those purple doors, or maroon doors, or whatever color they are, and um, the door slams in our face. And we thought the person was going to hold it open for us. Oh, they obviously don't like me. I thought we were friends. We cut vegetables together in the morning. I can't believe it. <laughs> or we go down to the dining room, and they've ran out of, you know, polenta. Like, and, it's, and, the sto- and it's like, oh... I'm always left out. <laughs> they didn't remember me. They did it on purpose. <laughs> or we pass one of the teachers. You know, we've just come back from this really great hike. You know, we're like, we're really jazzed. Then we see the teacher like, oh, shouldn't have been on a hike. Should have been walking. I can tell they're judging me. Oh, no, I've been seen. Oh, God. Oh, there's no God. Oh, Buddha. <laughs> So a couple of my favorite um, Sakya Duty stories are from one of our colleagues, James Barras. Uh, and I was actually on this retreat. It was a three-month retreat in uh, Barry in IMS, our Sister Center Insight Meditation Society. And there was this one particular yogi uh, who was very, um, let's say, loud. Uh, it was a you know, three-month silent retreat, but you know, some people are just physically more demonstrative <laughs> and larger than life than others. And so anyhow, so... Um, it was in the middle of the retreat, and uh, James was walking down in what's called the bowling alley, which is a long, narrow corridor. It's very quiet, very lovely place to walk, and, he's, and James walks very slowly. And this our favorite yogi comes bounding down <laughs> the, the corridor with his, you know, uh, um, that waterproof clothing, loud and you know, coughing and just oblivious to everything, and or seemingly anyway. And and the thought that bubbles up for James was. Well, at least I've got less self than him. <laughs> so you, may you be noticing you've been comparing how big or small yourself is. And sometimes out in the other world, it's like, it's good to, you know, the bigger self is better. And, and here it's like, no, the small self is better. 
no, I'm really nobody, you know, I'm really nothing, you know. Another note he has for himself in a similar vein is he's walking slowly and he's you know, really in the groove, you know, really in the zone, the walking zone. And then the note, the thought comes up, the note, looking good, looking good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've had that, you know. Somebody walks by and you're like super mindful, like, oh, I'm so glad they, they saw me then. <laughs> and not five minutes ago and I was just totally checked out and hating everything. And, so really good to catch those, these, you know, these subtle self-referencing. You know, we, we, get, you know, we get attached to the form. This, one of the second fetters is attachment to rites and rituals, attached to uh, form as ends in themselves. So we think somehow being the perfect yogi, doing the perfect walking is freedom. No, it's attachment to a form. You know, there's a place for form, it's a beautiful form, but not to, not to you know, carry it around on our back, you know, or to sort of become the best walker on the retreat. That's just, you know, it's, it's just another setup, you know. So other, 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 other proliferations about our practice, you know. I'm never going to get enlightened. I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to understand what they're on about. I'm never going to awaken. That is a, that's a form of Sakya Diddy. It's a view. Everyone's getting it but me. I walk into the Dharma Hall, everybody looks like a Buddha. And I'm kind of sniffling and scratching. And Or teaching. Teaching, as you know, is a huge place for the self to arise and self-referencing and comparing and, and perpunturing, proliferating. You know, there's the deflation, you know, I'm not good enough, I'll never be good enough. Or there's the inflation, and oh, those people don't know what they're talking about. You know, I know how, how it is. Or I could do a better job, just give me a chance, please. Or we're in comparison, we're comparing. You know, the, 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 the ego is built on a sense of comparison. There's no inherent essence to it, so it's always looking for, for, for its place and position in the world by, by comparing two things and each other. So it's either inflating itself, deflating itself, or even, even being the same as is a form of um, comparing that suffering, because it's always unstable. You know, we come in and uh, we sit down and you know, we're sitting really long and quiet and we're thinking like we're a great yogi and then we Look out the corner of an eye, and there's somebody else sitting over there. You think, hmm, maybe they came in. Maybe they came in before me. Wow, that means they've been sitting for at least an hour. God, that means I'm useless. You know, one particular place that's really important to pay attention to around a particular form of this self-view or sankhyaditi is the, the role of the critic. You know, many, many people are, are very strong self-critics, strong inner judge, which is another um, view, it's another positioning, taking ourselves to be somebody and believing this voice. Oh, I'm not a good person. I'm never going to get my stuff together. I'm never really going to be a good teacher. I'm unworthy to teach, common one. I'm unworthy to have students. And just look at those views that arise out of the critic, to see the critic for what it is, which is a bunch of thoughts conditioned from the past. And to have compassion when we, get, when we buy into that, because most of us do a lot. We believe those, those conditioned thoughts. So our practice is to see the talking, the thinking, to, and, to, and to, to, to abide in the awareness that knows the thinking that's coming and going, to take refuge in awareness, not in the content of the mind. What is it that's aware of the chattering mind? 
the judging mind. This Sakyadidi conditions um, becoming, becoming somebody, wanting to be, be special, wanting to be a special or a really good teacher. You know, there's a wholesome desire to teach, and it's a beautiful thing. And then the, the ego gets wrapped up in it, and there's a becoming. I want to be famous. I want to be really popular. I want to have massive classes and be on the front of Yoga Journal and da 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 And I want to make lots of money through my teaching. Wanting to be somebody. And, we, and, our, and, and the ego is, is shameless and will corrupt, will, will, will use our spiritual practice as it will use anything to inflate itself. Our meditation, our teaching, our good asana form. Lily Tomlin once said, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. <laughs> so noticing that becoming, it's called bhava tanha. It's, a, it's, a, it's another aspect of the second noble truth. Desire for sense pleasure, desire becoming, and, and desire for non-being or aversion. the desire to become the good yogi. I was crippled by this. I had this very inflated, I mean, not inflated, but just strong spiritual identity when I first started practicing for a long time. Um, and it would, you know, any identity is suffering. And I, you know, and, uh, you know whatever's constructed has to at some point be deconstructed. And uh, that was a very painful process to go through, to, re- to go through. I, was a, I went through this and on a long retreat, very humbling shattering of that shell, you know, because any structure is a shell and it's fragile and can be broken. And, uh, and, and this, this was probably about 12 years into my practice, this shell, this, this identity that built up around being a spiritual person, you know, finally shattered. And it was incredibly painful for a long time, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's one aspect of the dark night of, of seeing through these identities that are not ultimately who we are. The Buddha said, he who has given up papancha, this proliferating tendency of mind, he who has given up papancha has found the bliss of nirvana, the supreme peace. See, he who has given up, or she who has given up, distorting reality, not seeing things as they are, has found the bliss of nirvana, supreme peace. So I'm aware I'm running out of time here, so... That's an interesting concept. I'm running out of time. Where is it going? Oh, it went out the window. <laughs> Here's a couple of um, uh, haikus. Uh, haikus, that lovely uh, Japanese poetry form that, you know, in one sense, is, is the absence of papancha. The absence of proliferation. This is from Basho, classic haiku. The old pond, frog leaps, splash. Just that, just as it is. This is from Ryokan. After he was burgled, he was a very poor hermit, and every little thing that he had, it was stolen. The moon at the window, the thief has left behind. The moon at the window, the thief has left behind. So a couple more things, I'll close. 
So there's a famous teaching that many of you have heard the Buddha gave to a very ardent young student who was really anxious to know the essence of the Dharma Buddha's teaching called Bahia. And he said, you know, please just give me the essence of your teaching, the essence of the essence of your teaching. He's like us, he was in a hurry, you know, didn't have time for all those preliminary practices. So finally, after a long debate with the Buddha and he had, um, the Buddha said, in the scene, there is just the scene. In the herd, there is just the herd. In the sensed, there is just the sensed. In the cognized, there is just the cognized. It's that simple. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the sensing, in what's felt, there is just the sensing. In the cognized, in the thought, there is just the cognized. When you understand it in this way, he said, you will see that there is no here, no there, nor in between. This is the end of suffering. But our practice is that simple. There's just the six senses, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. And everything else is extra. Everything else is an overlay. That's why I like this practice so much, because it takes us back to that utter simplicity that T.S. Eliot speaks about. A state of complete simplicity costing nothing less than everything. So I want to leave you with, a, with an exercise. So um, if you want to um, sit comfortably, just take a minute or two. Put your pens down. Close your eyes. I'm just going to say a sentence. And the sentence is somewhat arbitrary, but this is the words I've chosen. You could do it with any sentence structure. So I'd like you to repeat silently these words. I am a meditator sitting here. I am a meditator sitting here. Now remove the word here. It's just so as I am a meditator sitting. Now remove the word sitting. I am a meditator. Remove the word meditator. I am a. Remove the a. It's just I am. Rest in the I am. Now remove the am. So there's just the I. Now remove the I.
you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.